Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Alice Ross, our wealth correspondent. This week, we'll be looking at the outlook for the UK mortgage market as competition increases, an examination of the Indian banking market as state-owned banks prepare to merge, and UBS, what's the outlook for the leadership? First, though, to the UK mortgage market. And Nick, there's been a flurry of news in this sector. Let's start with HSBC. We had an interview with the head of the UK business who told us they had plans to boost their UK mortgage lending by a third. Sounded pretty ambitious stuff. What's going on here? Yeah, it was an interesting interview with Ian Stewart, who runs the UK business. Not one that makes particularly encouraging reading for any of HSBC's rival lenders. They've been flagged as one of the key culprits in driving down profit margins across the sector over the last 18 months or so. And the message that Mr Stewart gave this week is that they're not going to stop doing that. HSBC has increased its mortgage book by £16 billion over the last couple of years. He said he wants to triple that with an extra £35 billion on top of what they've already done. Yeah, and the role that regulation is playing here is quite interesting, isn't it? Because like all the big UK lenders, HSBC is having to isolate its UK high street business. And that means that a lot of the deposits it generates here in the UK need to be recycled into UK lending and in this case into mortgages, artificially, arguably, therefore ballooning this market. Yeah. So, I mean, HSBC point to things like they've improved their customer service abilities and they're using mortgage brokers for the first time, which they didn't used to. And that's why they're getting up to what is a natural market share considering how big the overall bank is. They can say that, but the underlying pressure that everyone knows is there is that a lot of this is being pushed by ring fencing, as you mentioned. They spent loads of money separating their UK and international units, and it's left them with tens of billions of deposits that previously would have been used somewhere more profitable. If they can't use it in their international businesses, it's either sit it in gilts or in an account somewhere, or put it into mortgages, because it might be fairly low yielding, but it's still better than they would get elsewhere. HSBC is so big. And they have such low funding costs that they can just hoover up the safest loans at the lowest interest rates and it pushes down margins for everyone else. So if you are a smaller bank, your options at that point are either to abandon the sector entirely, which some people have done, like Tesco Bank, or you get pushed up the risk curve to start doing more riskier borrowers or making more longer term fixes that will give you a little bit more yield. Yeah, that interesting point you mentioned there, that the longer fixes. We've seen Yorkshire Building Society and Virgin launch 15-year fixes in recent days. And then you also mentioned Tesco Bank, which has quit the market, but Lloyd's has snapped up this nearly $4 billion portfolio of mortgages there. There's a flurry of activity in the mortgage market at a time when arguably margins don't look very attractive. Yeah, so that Tesco and Lloyd's deal that was confirmed on Tuesday 
is kind of a good example of how it's affecting both the big guys like Lloyd's and the smaller guys like Tesco. Tesco decided essentially they got a new chief executive came in last year, did a big review of the full business and thought that they don't have the scale to keep up the competition and take the costs of trying to keep up with everyone else. Lloyd's is the biggest mortgage lender in the UK, so it's not going to abandon that market. But conditions are so bad at the moment that if they can buy a book, they spent 3.8 billion, which is a premium to those loans pay per value, they can pay a premium for that and it's still better returns than they'd get by writing new business. Because it's older loans that was done at the higher rates and since then the rates have come down so far that writing the new business isn't very attractive at all. Well, let's go for a kind of outside view of what all this means to Darren Cook, who's a mortgage analytics manager at Money Facts. Darren, thanks so much for joining us. What do you think is making the mortgage market so competitive at the moment? Generally, the mortgage market is being competitive. We've got just under 5,000 products in the market, about 80% of them are fixed rates. It seems that we're coming from a historical low in October 2017, where the average rate was at its all-time low. Those products are coming up for renewal, so I think providers have to be competitive in the market. I think providers are looking to protect their mortgage book, as well as try and get new business in from the limited amount of mortgages available. Yeah, and as Nick was saying, there's obviously some regulatory factors around ring fencing and so on that have played into this. We're also seeing new types of products launched, aren't we? These ultra-long fixed rates. What is that a sign of, do you think? That's right. I mean, we've got 171 mortgage products for 10 years and over. I think a couple of years ago, there was nothing at 15 years. So I think providers are trying to come in with innovative products to try and retain their business. But it is quite a gamble because I think the UK borrower is used to short-term borrowing, looking at two years and three years and five years. So they have to test the market. And I think what these providers like Virgin Money and Yorkshire Building Society are trying to do is testing it, see if the take-up is good, and then uh, hopefully we'll get more competition in the 10 years plus. Yeah, because obviously, as we know, the UK is fairly out of step with a lot of the world in terms of having such a short-term, highly competitive market. Just a final word from you then on where we are in terms of the economic outlook. Obviously, a lot of uncertainty around Brexit and expectations of an economic downturn. House prices still fairly inflated in a lot of parts of the country. Are we riding for a fall? I think with mortgage rates, if you look at the swap rates, that's where the banks uh, hedge themselves to get interest fluctuations. The five-year swaps are lower than the two-year swaps, and the only time that that's happened is a month before the base rate went down six consecutive reductions in October 2008. So I think that there's margin there on interest rates risk for mortgage to drop further. What I think is that the banks will probably leave the higher loan-to-values, the riskier loans alone, since the PRA came in with saying that they're watching lenders basically sacrificing default risks. So I expect interest rates to fall on the twos, the three and fives at the lower LTVs, meaning the deposits of, let's say, 40%. A lower loan-to-value. Correct, because basically the default risk on those is pretty low anyway. So I think the first-time buyers have possibly had their share on rate cuts. I don't think they're going to move very much unless we get a base rate cut. But it looks like the market has factored in one base rate reduction in the next two years and two in the next five. Well, time will tell. Thank you so much for joining us, Darren Cook from MoneyFacts. Let's move on to our second topic of the day and a look at the Indian banking sector. We're joined now by Ben Parkin, who's our correspondent in Mumbai. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. There's been some pretty dramatic news in the state-owned bank sector, hasn't there? What exactly is happening and why? Well, last week, India's finance minister 
Nirmala Sitaraman announced a bumper consolidation of India's state-run banking system. The plan is to merge 10 state banks into four new ones. Now, this has come in the context of the government becoming increasingly worried and active in trying to battle a minor financial crisis and, and a subsequent economic slowdown. So the government started this consolidation project in 2017 by merging the State Bank of India with some smaller ones and last year fusing three banks, the largest of which was the Bank of Baroda. Including this most recent announcement, this brings the total number of banks to 12, down from 27. The most interesting is probably the Punjab National Bank, which was last year in the international spotlight after reporting that it was defrauded allegedly by companies associated with Nirav Modi, the celebrity jeweler who fled to London. So it's being merged with two smaller banks, and it'll be the second largest public sector bank in India. The reason this is important is that state banks account for two-thirds of banking assets, but they're widely seen as being badly run, vulnerable to political interference, and as a result, they've built up lots of bad loans and haven't been able to lend, and this has taken a toll on the economy. So, Ben, what are the likely impacts going forward? Is this going to actually work? Are the NPLs, the non-performing loans, likely to be shored up in some way? Is it going to free up the banking sector to lend? There's a big debate about to what extent these banks should be privatised. Now, leaving that aside, I think many reasonable Indians would agree that some state banks is a good thing, but the 27 is probably unnecessary. So consolidating them is seen as a good step. However, on Tuesday, which was the first day of markets trading after the announcement, there was a major sell-off in the bank stocks. And some of the ones that were proposed to be consolidated fell 8%, and I think in some cases, maybe more. So that suggests that there are some considerable concerns about how effective this will be. For one, by merging some of these smaller, weaker banks that have quite high ratios of non-performing assets with larger banks that have lower ratios, you're going to end up decreasing the attractiveness of those larger banks to investors. That's one concern. There's also concern that the process of actually merging them won't be as smooth as the government is suggesting, and it could hurt profitability and growth in the short term. However, these banks will be the beneficiaries of a large capital infusion. There's a $10 billion recapitalization plan that was announced in July, but the finance minister has outlined a rough sketch of how much each of these new banks would get and introduced some governance reforms. So needless to say, the hope is that these new entities will be healthier than what was there before. A final thought, Ben, on how this might tie in with the other issues going on in the financial sector. Last time we looked in Banking Weekly at the Indian lending market, it was to focus on a mini crisis at the time in the shadow banking sector. What's the latest there? And does this state-owned bank merger plan connect to that at all? Yeah, they are connected for sure. To recap, India's shadow banks have become very important in the financial system and the economy more broadly over the past few years. And that's in a significant part because of the troubles of the state banks. But last year in September, one of the largest, IRL and FS, which focused on funding infrastructure projects, defaulted despite having an excellent credit rating and sparking 
panicked so-called layman moment in India. Since then, the sector has gone through a real tough patch and things are still looking quite bad. These shadow banks have been unable to raise funds. They've slowed lending and this has caused a liquidity squeeze, which is being reflected in economic data. GDP, for example, has fallen to a six-year low. A couple of large shadow banks are still thought to be in a very precarious state and some economists and analysts and so on think that a couple more could go bust before we see the worst of it. All the more important then that the state-owned bank mergers work as a method to get them back on track as effective lenders. Yes, exactly. And the hope is that these newly revitalized state banks will be able to start lending to the BFCs again, who will in turn be able to get liquidity flowing back into the economy. The shadow banks are seem to be nimbler and more flexible than the state banks, so would prove an effective distributor of that liquidity, more so than the state banks themselves. So this is very much the government's hope that the state banks will start lending again and help to solve this shadow banking crisis. Fingers crossed for you and for them. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Let's move on to our final item of the day and a look at UBS as it apparently launches a fairly detailed succession planning process. Alice, you reported on the appointment of Iqbal Khan as the new co-head of wealth management. This was widely interpreted as being part of that succession plan. Tell us exactly what happened and who this person is. Right, so Iqbal Khan had left Credit Suisse as head of their wealth management unit back in July amid rumours that he'd had a bit of a blow when he was allegedly told that he wasn't going to get the top job at Credit Suisse. So we sort of knew that he was ambitious and floating around the European banking industry, probably looking for something new and important. And at the time, it was rumoured that he was either going to join UBS or head up Julius Baer as their CEO. Julius Baer then appointed another CEO from within the company. So that avenue closed off. Whether or not he was actually in talks with Julius Baer remains an open question. We think he probably was. But anyway, he's now joined the board of UBS and he is replacing Martin Blessing, who is leaving UBS at the end of the year. And he used to be at Commerce Bank in Germany, of course. Yes. So Mr. Khan is going to be part of the new leadership team. He's co-head of wealth management. And where does that put him in the broader fold then? So he's co-head of wealth management now, taking over from Martin Blessing and his other co-head will be Tom Narratil, who is sort of in charge of the US side of things in particular, although they share responsibilities. Tom Narratil was also a former chief financial officer at UBS. And he is very much seen as also a possible successor. So you've got the two of them now. There's also a third possible successor, a woman, which is always nice for a bit of diversity in the banking industry, Sabina Keller-Busa, and she is the chief operating officer. She already had that position, and she's now been also handed the position of president of UBS Europe, Middle East and Africa. So, Stephen, does this mean Sergio Amotti, the longtime chief executive, is on his way out? Well, I think Mr. Amotti, the CEO, and his boss, the chairman, Axel Weber, have sort of said in public a few times they want to carry on till 2021, 2022. But there has been a lot of consternation in the investor and analyst and media communities about how succession planning is going over there, whether they've got the right people ready to take over. 
I think it's fair to say investors were never big fans of Martin Blessing, the ex-Commerce Bank CEO who's on his way out to make room for Iqbal Khan. But the real problem came when their former head of wealth management, a guy called Jörg Zeltner, who's ended up at a more boutique private bank across town, and former investment banking boss Andrea Orsell left over the previous two years, kind of leaving a void here. So recruiting Mr. Khan is a real attempt to address this, but also to kind of get UBS firing on all cylinders again. There has been a lot of drift, both on the investment bank and wealth management side, which has seen its share price slip by about a third. The gap between their performance and Credit Suisse is narrowed slightly, as to a host of other sort of macro headwinds and idiosyncratic problems. Iqbal Khan, I think it's fair to say, is not a man who lacks self-confidence and is not a man who will come in without making some pretty significant changes to the culture and leadership over in the wealth management unit. He starts pretty soon on the 1st of October, so we'll start to see all these changes come through then. And maybe UBS will find itself in a less sort of sleepy, self-contented position than it has over the past year or so. So it's going to be an interesting period for both people that work for the bank and those of us who follow it closely and write about it. Absolutely. It's not going to be quiet, I don't think. We will keep a close eye. Thank you very much for that. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to Nick, Stephen and Alice here in the studio. Thanks also to Ben Parkin, who dialed in from India, and our guest this week, Darren Cook from Money Facts. Thank you for listening. Do remember that you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.